We turn with you now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Luke, chapter 22, beginning in verse 21. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let us stand now. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we indeed give you thanks for your goodness and deliverance of this nation, the preservation, particularly of the Christian religion, and blessing of your people, Lord, we can be thankful for a time in which the whole nation stops what they're doing for a moment. We know, Lord, that the world as a whole would have us, that Satan would have us continually in activity and in noise and in entertainment, never once uh, taking a moment's uh, escape from that. But, Lord, we would desire this morning to hear your voice, and we must be silent in order to hear it. We pray, Heavenly Father, therefore, that you would grant us great peace of mind and receptivity as we hear your word. And Lord, those who would desire greatly to receive and benefit from it, we pray, therefore, that you'd open our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts, and that, Lord, you would help us to understand this fairly perplexing uh, passage and benefit from it, and that we might glorify you in it all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we carry on in this most momentous chapter, Luke chapter 22, and we come to a fairly strange and tragic scene. Now, the disciples know that Jesus has come there to Jerusalem to die, to be the Lamb of God, to lay down his life. He has said so many times. And he has just revealed to them there in the upper room that his betrayer is among them, that, that the very one who is going to precipitate his death is one of their fellow disciples. Now, this is sobering news for them. And their immediate response is to try to determine which one it was. 
So in verse 23, they began to question among themselves which of them it would be who would do this thing. And the manner is described a little bit more in a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 26, verse 22. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And we can be thankful that they were sorrowful. We can be thankful for an element of self-doubt at this point as they're considering who it might be. And we remember that Judas was so far above uh, suspicion that they did not guess it was him, even though they had some clues that Jesus had provided for them. But from that point, it seemed, unfortunately, to degenerate. If the the discussion at first was a, a humble one and a sorrowful one, it degenerated into a different kind of questioning, a different kind of dispute, in which they try to figure out not who it might be among them, maybe it's me. They try to figure out who would be the greatest among them. We don't know exactly how this happened, but perhaps it might have begun along the lines of, because there's no real break here in the narrative. It moves smoothly from who, who, who's going to betray to who's the greatest. But maybe it was along the lines of, no, it can't be me. Is it you, James? No, no certainly not. No, I'm, I'm one of the great ones. I'm going to be sitting on his, his right hand, actually, so it's probably not me. And then someone else said, but no, it couldn't be me either. But no, I'm the one who has preeminence. And it degenerates to the same old kind of talk that they've already had along these lines. And it's very, very sad. Very sad. Jesus has to correct them, of course, as he did before. And they didn't listen. Jesus has to correct them out of their wrong thinking. And he does not do so by dismissing the idea that anyone should ever be great or have preeminence of any kind. Not at all. And he just needs to correct their idea of what that looks like. In today's vocabulary, the concept he's talking about is called leadership. And that word is thrown around a great deal, but there's much, much misunderstanding about it, and certainly there's much misapplication. And so this is our opportunity in God's particular providence for us to consider this topic of leadership, what it is, how we get it, whether it's a good thing or not, and particularly the kind of leader that Jesus himself was. Well, the, the title, very simply and very easy for, for you children, is Leadership. And there are four points. The disciples want preeminence. Secondly, worldly rulers exercise power and privilege. Thirdly, Christ's example is service. And fourth, the disciples will yet lead. Well, so we have the one simple word of leadership and some more difficult titles for these points. But the first one is the disciples want preeminence. Verse 1, but behold the hand, sorry, verse uh, 21, but hold the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Let me just say, first of all, that this was at least part of Judas's problem because Judas thought very highly of himself and he was probably, like the others, expecting that, uh, Jesus to assume some kind of earthly kingdom and was not happy to find out that this was not his intention at all. And it is at least possible that he had come to understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom uh, further than the others and that was his problem. He understands that Jesus is actually going there to die. He understands that there is no earthly kingdom forthcoming. And that's what he doesn't like. And having understand these things, he says, this is not what I signed up for. I I wanted to be great. 
I wanted to have preeminence and prestige. And instead, it's become clear to me that this mission is something else entirely. And so I think we could begin by saying that Judas wanted preeminence, and his response to that was to betray the Lord. But this is preface to the core of it, which begins in verse 23. Now that it began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. And so there was a dispute among them, also a dispute among them, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Two different kinds of disputes, and probably one kind of heart behind it all. Even though we said there was a measure of, of humility in considering who among themselves might do it, the fact that it could so quickly degenerate and who among themselves ought to be the leader tells you their mentality. The issue is not new. It's way back in Luke chapter 9. In fact, some of this material is almost exactly the same as what we've already seen in Luke nine forty six. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to him, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. That's the example that Jesus gives. You want to be great? Let me, let me explain how it is. And he, he doesn't illustrate by getting the greatest among them, but by a little child. And again, children and young people, this is so very important for you to understand that you're not waiting for a moment in order which you can follow Jesus. You're not even waiting for a moment in which you can be significant. Jesus is saying, indeed, that everyone needs to be as a little child. You are perfectly placed in order then to be exactly the way the Lord Jesus would have you to be. And that means not lifted up in pride not self-sufficient, not thinking you can do it yourself, but rather willing to be dependent on others to receive. That's what Jesus is saying. If you want to receive his kingdom, you can't be as one who says, I'm going to do it all myself. And we know this is so much the problem of people who refuse the Christian gospel. It's because they want to do it themselves. They want to have their fingerprints all over their salvation. And the very idea then, that they must hand themselves over entirely to someone else, hand themselves over and trust themselves to the Lord Jesus, is intolerable. But no, we must be as little children in this matter. Well, this is the disciples' problem. They've forgotten this lesson. They are not being as little children. And now there's another dispute about who's going to be the greatest. Again, meaning not only that they were engaged in the subject, that they were thinking it secretly, but they're actively debating and disputing as to which one of them would be. They were disputing one another's assessment. Well, this is what we see in the very similar passage in Mark chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, what is it? Uh, build up the church wonderfully? Uh, uh, bring with great power the word and the spirit of God? What are they asking for? No. Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Clearly they wanted places of preeminence. That includes John, who we consider, we know, the great loving uh, disciple, the one whom Jesus was so close to, the one who couldn't stop talking about love in his latter days. He was there very much seeking the preeminence. But, you know, the others were no better. The response seems to be, even back here in Mark 10, that seems to be of envy and rivalry. 
And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Not at all, just kind of, uh, James and John, letting it roll off their backs. They were greatly displeased as a response that probably said, who do they think they are? Actually, I know that I should have the preeminence. Why shouldn't I have it? The point is, is very simple. Look, I'm not going to belabor this point, and I'm not going to belabor any of these points. The whole sermon is so very simple. When we get rid of the wrong ideas of leadership, we turn to the right one that Jesus has. There isn't much to be said, and I hope I don't have to say this any further. The disciples wanted preeminence as they reflected this, this unfortunate um, Uh, weakness and sin in all of humanity that began with Adam and Eve. And their sin, the parting from the living God, from the submission to his word, and wanting to be like God, since then, we have all desired preeminence. And they were being exactly according to type as they sought the preeminence. Well, Secondly, we should say that worldly leaders exercise power and privilege. This is the example that Jesus, the counterexample, to say this is what is, is there. I understand why you're thinking along the lines that you are, not only because of what is in your heart, but because of the examples that you've seen. But I want you to understand that that's not a good example. That's not what I want from you. He said in verse 25, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. Let me just briefly say that Jesus is speaking of the kings of the Gentiles. And so on their best days, the kings of Israel were better than that. Particularly in the case of David, who is a type of Christ, we actually see him as a servant leader. We see him as very courageous, risking death, willing to lay down his own life in order that he might save others. We see him there among the people, doing what needs to be done and seeking the good of the nation And all these things, a type, an anticipation of Christ. But that's David on his best day. He wasn't always like that. Generally speaking, rather, the kings of Israel themselves were like the kings of the Gentiles. But for the people of the world, being a king is pretty straightforward. It means lording it over others. It's about power. And those who aspire to such situations care little about the people that they are leading, only that they should be able to tell them what to do. And we encounter this constantly, don't we? We look at the survey of the world all over the world, on every continent. Those who are given the highest places and those who seek them, their thought is only how might I lord it over those who are under me. And it goes on to say, and those who exercise authority. So it's not just the kings, but those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. They expect to be thanked for it. They expect to have titles along these lines of privilege and prestige. And you can pretty much summarize worldly ideas of leadership into those three things. Power, privilege, and prestige. All self-centered, all having to do rather with what it benefits the man or woman rather than how it benefits the people. Now, I don't need to belabor this point either because we all know the way worldly VIPs act. All you have to say is the word VIP, and you know what I'm talking about. And it's about power, it's about privilege, it's about prestige. And this is the example that Jesus says don't be like that. My disciples, you're acting like them, 
Don't forget that these are the kings of the Gentiles that have nothing to do with, that have no inheritance in the kingdom of, of heaven. No part of me whatsoever. In fact, one of them or a couple of them are about to kill me. And soon enough they will kill you. These kings of the Gentiles were going to, to put to death the vast majority of his audience there. The ones who were striving among themselves as if they were like this. They would die martyrs' death at the hands of those who were kings of the Gentiles. And he says, don't be like them. Worldly leaders exercise power and privilege. But thirdly, Christ's example is service. Verse 26, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? I am among you as the one who serves. And friends, it, it hit me. I don't know why it took me so long reading this word of God to understand. But there he was. It's in the very midst of this institution of the Lord's Supper. The very last of the Passover feast and now the first of the Lord's Supper. And who is serving? It's the Lord Jesus Christ and he's doing it. Right then, he's as in the very midst of them. They are fully seated. How could he possibly pass out that bread were he not to stand up and go around and serve them? They're all kind of leaning forward on their their elbows like this, the way they used to, to eat. And he is going around and he is serving them. And what does he look like in that situation? Well, he looks like a slave. Because that's so in a typical uh, it, uh, family, a, a prosperous or comfortable family, they would have a slave or two, and they would all be reclining at table, and the least of them, the one who, who is, can be bought and sold, is going around and serving them. And he's saying, guys, look, who's serving here? You understand it's me. You understand that you are all seated while I'm serving you. He says, that's what leadership looks like. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. That's the great paradox of Christian leadership. That the leadership, the essence of it, is rather to take on those attributes that the world imposes involuntarily on the least. Right? In the world, no one voluntarily decides to serve. In the world, no one voluntarily decides to go last. No one voluntarily decides to sacrifice for others. But Jesus Christ is saying, this is the essence of what makes one great in the kingdom of heaven. To be one who serves. You know, I should go on to explain what Jesus said in Mark 10. You remember, James and John have come saying, we want to be on your left hand and your right hand in, in your kingdom. And Jesus has to explain to them what greatness entails. He says, you do not know what you ask for. You don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Do you know what you're asking? Do you know what it's going to take for me to have that place of preeminence that the Father is going to bestow upon me after my great victory? It will mean great suffering. And it will mean 
beyond that, enduring the wrath of Almighty God, being poured out for the sins of all of God's people. Are you able, friends, to endure that? They say, we are able. Jesus said to him, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized, in some sense. Yes, you're right. So they, they too would take their turns being persecuted and suffering for the name of Christ. They too would serve God's people. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Notice even here, as we consider the definition of what it is like to be a leader, how he is perfectly under authority himself, though he be the creator of all things, so he be the sustainer of all things. People used to to uh, complain about the, the doctrine of Christ. They said, how could this, that when he was an infant, when he was a baby, be upholding all things? Well, we answer, yes, he came in the estate of humiliation, but he never stopped being the, being the God-man. He, he never stopped upholding all things by the word of his power. It didn't look like it, but it was true. He did. Absolutely. And he never stopped then even having such great power, submitting to the will of his Father in heaven. And he very humbly and very brightly says, that much is not even mine to give. To make the arrangement of who has the preeminence in the new heavens and the new earth, that is of my Father's determination. And I cannot make it. Friends, what a heart that is so opposite to what we see in this world. As leaders, as soon as they have any position of authority whatsoever, they begin to go astray. And they begin to be a law unto them, themselves. And, and if there is any kind of rule of law, they begin to flout it and make exceptions and to twist it and all the rest of it. And they grow corrupt. But our example of a leader is one who, even when it comes to something that might seem to you and I to be a fairly somewhat trivial thing, at least giving the fact that he is the eternal son of God and the prince of glory, surely he can pull the strings to determine who gets to sit on his left and right hand. But he says, no, no, that's in my father's hand and I will not usurp that. This is our example. Well, we know that beyond that, what Jesus is speaking of in terms of the definition of leadership as one who serves that is explained more fully in Philippians chapter 2. The great, the great picture of the, the mentality, the heart of Christ is found in Philippians 2.3. And it is given for exactly the same reason as Jesus has this discussion here. Because of the pride of his people for the desire for preeminence that was the occasion for speaking it to his disciples. And it was the occasion under the power of the Holy Spirit for the writing of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2.3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. God's word is not in vain. The reason why that is written is because probably some of the Philippians were doing things through selfish ambition and conceit. And therefore they had to be corrected. But in lowliness of mind, let us each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That is the heart of it. The, the heart of seeking the preeminence is to say, I am better than those around me. And along with that, not only imagining of lifting yourself up relative to the people around you, but also of not esteeming their particular needs and interests. You're seeking your self-interest because you think it's the only thing that's important. 
But rather, he says, look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And here's the example then. Here's the Christology. Here's the weapons-grade Christology. It comes in the midst of a lesson on humility. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What's the mind of Christ? It's some lofty philosophy, no doubt. It's like the mind of one of these great scientists or, or, or philosophers. And no, the answer is no. No, the mind of Christ is this, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. There was nothing more for him to attain. It was not that he was seeking something he didn't have. He already had everything, everything that could possibly, every status, every prestige was given him. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He's saying that's the mind of Christ. Not to seek to make yourself what in probably in reality for these Philippians was an exaggerated estimation of themselves. They were here and they, they wanted to be up here. And they imagined themselves and so they, they began to act like they were up there. But he's saying, no, the mind of Christ is even if you're here, and Christ was here, but even if you're here, to be willing to, to act as if you were here. That's what he's saying in the mind of Christ that we ought to imitate. That you, to humble and to be obedient to the point of death. Those two things go together, right? The, the humility and service and also the submission to the one who's in authority. Those things go perfectly together. And he said that is the mind of Christ. That is the guiding principle that came, that enabled our salvation to be. The reason why you and I are saved is because Christ was willing to lay aside that which was properly his and to take a lower place. The reason why those disciples in that circle were able to receive the Lord's Supper and therefore the means of grace is because Christ was willing to take the place of a servant, of a slave to serve him. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And friends, it doesn't end there, does it? Because it continues on in verse 9, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, because it doesn't last forever. And even if we were therefore still seeking prestige, even if we were still seeking greatness, the, the best way to do it actually is to follow Christ in that. If you want that kind of greatness, and believe me, what more could be desired than to be elevated as Christ has been elevated? And the best way to do that is to humble yourself and to serve. Because by doing this, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and on those on earth and of those under the earth. Christ will certainly have the preeminence. He will certainly have the submission of all the world. He will have that power and authority. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the way that it was secured, not that it wasn't already his, but the way that it was reiterated, the way that it was magnified, was by his humble service, willing to take the place of the lowest to save those who he came to save. And that's my fourth point. Even though the disciples were very wrong in the way that they wanted their preeminence, and they didn't really rate it, they didn't really, they didn't really deserve any kind of preeminence, 
And even though they were following a wrong example of the way worldly leaders have exercised their power and privilege, they were still going to have an opportunity to lead. That's the amazing thing. So I'll go on now to verse 28. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. That's an amazing thing to say after, have, after they've been debating among themselves as to who should be the greatest. He goes, he reminds them, you are those who have continued with me in my trials. As opposed to Judas, who has not continued with me in my trials. Who has left us precisely because of these trials and wants nothing to do with him. And he's gone over to the other side. Now, and he's in league with my enemies. He's not continued with me in his trials. He's exited the problem. And furthermore, this is a wonderful assurance to them that they would continue with him in his trials. They are not like the worldly VIPs, and they would not be like the worldly VIPs even if they wanted to be. They're here with Jesus, and they're going to serve with him, and they're going to suffer with him. And that's a great assurance. You are those who have continued with my my trials. And let me say that this is the parable of the sower. The fact that you continue with Jesus in his trials, it is a wonderful assurance that you are the good seed. You think of the four different kinds of seed. And there's some kind of seed that Satan immediately snatches it away. It doesn't even reach into the heart. And there are others who, who, who spring up for joy. But because they have no root, when trials and tribulations come their way, then they, are, are, they, they depart the faith. But rather those who continue on, even those who are not distracted or choked by the cares of this world, they are those in whom the, the word of God bears good fruit now and for eternity. These are those who would yet bear with Jesus in his sufferings. And what he goes on to say then is even more amazing. In verse 29, And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one on me. Friends, of all the things that I could possibly have thought of to say at such a time, I would not have thought of that. And I'm sure you wouldn't have either. These people, in the very moment of his need, in the the very eve of his departure, are are selfishly arguing about their preeminence. And he says, friends, my my father is going to bestow a kingdom. I'm going to bestow a kingdom on you just as he's bestowed on me. Everything that you would ever want, all of these things that you have desired, they shall come true even still. What a word of assurance and blessing. A perfect and complete equivalence, by the way. He doesn't say sort of along the lines of the Father having bestowed a kingdom upon me that I will give something to you. But the words are a precise equivalent. Everything that I have, I give to you. Isn't that the word of the father of the prodigal? When his elder brother comes and says, what have I gotten here? All I've been doing is slaving and serving you. Well, it's right for the son to serve his father. It's right for God's people to serve their Lord in this world. The father's assurance is that everything I have is yours. And the son's assurance is that everything that has been bestowed upon me, including the kingdom itself, I bestow upon you, who are my bride, my brothers. 
And that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What he's saying is, I'm not begrudging you the kingdom. I came and I'm suffering in order that you might have these good things. I want you to sit down at the table, at my table. I want you to reign in my kingdom. Friends, now is not the time for these spoils of war. Now is the time for service. Now is not the time for the celebration. Now is the time for the sacrifice. The kingdom is going to come. And they are going to have it. They are going to yet lead. In fact, he says... You're going to be sitting on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They will be kings. They will be judges. They will exercise power and authority. And all these things will be theirs. Only just not now. The problem was not in them wanting to be leaders. is that they had no conception of how they should attain that. And the answer is service. Humility. Submission. The answer, the, the problem is not that they desired these, this this kingdom, this kingship. They only wanted to sit on his right hand and let. He's saying, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to do one better than that. You don't have to be the one who's a second. You don't have to be the duke or the earl. I'm going to make you a king as well. Everything that I have will be yours. Just not now. Not now. Because now is the time to suffer and to continue with me in my trials. Well, the applications are so many. The first and obvious one is to say that we should follow Christ. It is, even the world knows, the military service knows, that to be a good leader, you must be first a good follower. That is, there is no such thing as a good leader, one worthy of being followed, who himself was not capable of being a good follower. But this is so much more so in the Christian life. So much more so. The essence of it is complete submission to the Savior. Again, as a little child, we entrust our lives, our eternal lives, our internal souls into the hands of Jesus Christ. We say, I can't do it. In perfect, realistic estimation of ourselves, we say, we are nothing. We can do nothing. Lord, I come to you. As a very little child comes to her, her mother and says, I can't make food. I don't have food. I can't earn money for food. Please feed me. And then thereafter, submits in every way to our Lord. Why? What else would we do? Like the disciple says, where, Lord, where else can I go? You have the words of life. The things that are true, the things that will, that will rightly govern us, the paths of righteousness and blessing are all to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we follow him. What else are we going to do? Somebody, you know, not so long ago came up with the idea that maybe people could be saved, could have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Maybe you've heard of that. Right? Well, this, he, he, Christ is his Savior, but it's, he's not, it's not his Lord. Friends, that is not the case. It's not like that at all. The essence of it is an ongoing submission. Yes, it's imperfect. Yes, we sin. But the heart of every Christian believer is if it were possible that we would submit to Christ in every detail, every facet of our lives, for every moment of our lives until we die. If Jesus is your Savior, he is certainly your Lord. That's, we must follow him. 
And I would say beyond salvation, beyond our, our discipleship in this world in which we follow him, we ha- if you desire anything greater, if you desire any office or particular uh, ministry uh, uh, beyond the ordinary in, in the Christian walk, then the foundation is entirely in submission. Because there is no useful ministry. There is no useful officer in the church, no useful elder, deacon, or minister, no useful anything, wife, mother, older brother, older sister, none of those things are useful apart from perfect submission to the one they themselves are in authority to. And none of these happen apart from submitting to the word of God. If you want to lead, you must first follow Christ. And then secondly, we must continue with Christ. Again, you are those who have continued with me in my trials. Trials. Because that much that is inherent in the Christian life. Trials. Right now is a time of suffering. Right now is a time of service and of sacrifice. And there will be trials. And the definition of the disciple, the, one, the way you know you're a disciple, is that you're continuing with Christ even in the midst of them. And I want that to be an assurance to you. Because sometimes we think, Lord, some people say, if there was a God, how could this thing possibly happen to me? Lord, here I am trying to serve you. And it seems like all that I've gotten is grief and trials because of it. What if the Lord Jesus had used that same kind of logic as he was there being arrested and saying, Lord, what is this? I thought I was trying to serve you. Now I'm being arrested. And and then what next? Convicted and beaten. And he would be in perfect despair, wouldn't he, by the time he made it to the cross, nailed to that cross for execution. By that logic, there is no God. Okay? But that's not true logic. Actually, the logic is that he demonstrated his submission. He demonstrated who he was as the Messiah, as the chosen one of the Lord, precisely because he continued in submission into the point of death. He was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And friends, if we carry on, even in the midst of trials, that should strengthen our assurance, should strengthen our our certainty that we are of him. And as long, you know, as if we think that it's an unheard of thing that's hit us, then we'll be thrown off. That's what 1 Peter 4 says. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. That's the thing, as if a strange thing, some fiery trial, is something unheard of and strange, and it'll throw us and say, this, this shouldn't be happening. Would rather rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Again, even in the world, that is the way that it works. It's a nice thing to wear this uniform on Remembrance Day. It's a nice thing to have a couple of ribbons. And if anyone's wondering, they're not really very important. Anyone who knows what a hero looks like, these are not the ribbons that he would have. But it's nice to have a couple of them. But it wasn't nice being on the deployments. It wasn't nice being in the dust and the desert and all the rest of it. But this is what Jesus is saying. If you want to reign, if you want to have all the preeminence in the end, God is going to give it to you. 
All he's asking for us in the moment is to endure with him a little bit in the midst of trials. I don't even, I'm, I'm starting to forget the brief amount of time I spent in those dusty places. And I suspect it'll be along those lines in heaven. I suspect that in heaven, this will be a sort of fading memory of the hard times. But rather, it'll be all the sweeter. We will appreciate it all the more just because it wasn't always easy. Some of that glory, when we look at Christ, we say we look at him as the ultimate hero. And he has those scars, you know. He has those scars on his hands and on his side. We look at him as the the victor, the one who has triumphed. And how thankful. It's all the sweeter, all the more glorious for what he endured on our behalf. And if we were willing to be with him even for just a little brief while in this world, I guarantee you it will be all the more glorious. And what he bestows upon us will be even more incommensurate than ribbons for the, the few things that I've done. Now, that's what we should do. We should continue with Christ. Thirdly, we should lead with him. You know, there is nothing wrong with leadership, nothing wrong with it at all. The problem was the way the disciples understood leadership. They were taking their cues from the world, and we are liable to do that as well. But you know what? Jesus goes on to say, no, I expect you to lead. I'm I'm going to tell you. I'm giving you authority. You're going to be judging the world. And, And soon enough, he was going to grant them a commission. When he rose again, he was going to grant them a commission. He says, all authority has been given under heaven and earth has been given to me. And now under that authority, I send you out to lead the world to Christ. I send you out to make disciples of the entire world, teaching them everything that I have taught you. I give you that leadership. I give you that authority. And Jesus expected them to lead, and they certainly would. And so should we. In our varying roles and callings inherently as Christians, even if we have the most lowly and and humble situation in life, inherently we are also those who lead. Just because we have this authority from Christ. Just because we have that which the world around us does not have. The world, I should not tell you, is crying out for leadership. It has none. Because it's not connected with the source of all legitimate power and authority. The source of all truth and wisdom in Christ. And friends, there is a wide open door to do this work. In every vocation, friends. In every vocation. Lead as Christ has given you the power and authority to do so. Fourthly, husbands, I have to say this. If we're talking about leadership, we have to talk about husbands. And I want to just read Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. You see right away what the, the idea, the concept is of service. He was there, you know, beforehand washing the disciples' feet. They, they need something, these disciples need something. They need the, the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, and he goes to serve and to take care of that which is lacking in his bride, the Christ, uh, his, his bride, the church. 
And so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Now, this is the example, this is the paradigm, husbands, of the way we should love our wives. Absolutely, it involves leadership. The world can't stand that idea. Uh, uh, Gavin Peacock, who wrote that book we're reading, was pilloried by the press for merely suggesting that there's a difference in role between men and women in marriage. Of course there should be a difference. But what are you going to use that leadership for? Example is to benefit your wife, to make her better, to help her, to lead her in the way that is good and right. And, to, and all the things that are lacking to improve her, to lead her into in perfect conformity of Christ because Christ himself wants that perfectly beautiful bride. Not speaking in terms of physical beauty, actually speaking in terms of spiritual and eternal beauty, which is a wonderful thing. Because we know that earthly, worldly, physical beauty is fleeting. It doesn't remain for all time. But that which God calls husbands to do for their wives remains forever. Now, friends, by extension, he says, look, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. By extension, then, if this is what Christ is doing for his bride, the, the, the whole church, that means that's true of all of us. That we join in this great work of beautifying the body. That's a beautiful, wonderful thing. That all of us then have the work of beautifying the, the, the body. We look around and we see the, this, body, this bride, and we should be zealously seeking to ways to perfect her because we know that's what the Lord Jesus is doing. We know that's his great work of calling his bride, bringing in the church, and then building it up, making it more perfect in terms of sanctification. Everything that is lacking, therefore, we should be on the lookout for and seeking to help, seeking to lead in the right direction, seeking to speak a word of encouragement, seeking to speak a, a word of, of wisdom, speaking, just seeking to intercede for one another in prayer, which is very often the most important thing that we do. This is the paradigm that we have. We should live it. Fifthly and finally, I would say we should remember where we're heading. Right? Because... If your horizon, again, is merely in this world, there are many, many problems with that. But one of them is that you, you, you will really be precious about having the preeminence now. Because that's your time horizon, that's the example of the world, and, and therefore we want our good things now. But Jesus is saying, don't forget where you're heading. That was his gentle rebuke to them. It was a pretty gentle rebuke. He's saying, look, you're being like the Gentiles, stop it. But also he says... I'm about to bestow upon you a kingdom. Don't forget that. You're going to be judging. You don't have to strive for that. You don't have to push others down for that. You don't have to lift up your voice and make your claim louder than the others for that. It's going to happen. And that enables us then to be very relaxed when those things apparently are in question at the moment. When we don't receive the notice that we really think that we should, we can be totally relaxed about it. Because Jesus, Jesus has, as it were, come to us on the side and said, Hey, don't forget, I'm the one in charge here and I'm going to make you a king. You're going to sit on the throne. You're going to have my kingdom. I bestowed upon you. Don't forget that. And we should receive his word in faith as we do all of his word, as we receive the gospel itself. We don't need 
to strive and dispute or be concerned, Christ has said we're going to reign, and we should believe it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful word to us. We are amazed truly at how gentle you were with the disciples, how wrong-headed they were on the very eve of Christ's disciple the departure from this world. That they should be so concerned with these things that they should be disputing as to who should be greatest. But Lord, it was the occasion to correct them, and an occasion to correct us. Heavenly Father, how we pray that our, we would not take our cues from the way the world acts and their VIPs and celebrities. But rather, Lord, we would take our cue, take our example from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was one who served. As a servant he came. Lord, we pray that as we consider these things, we would not forget that soon enough we shall reign. Indeed, we shall lead even now. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be good and godly, humble leaders, centered in the word of God and the center of that, the Lord Jesus Christ bringing people to Christ and perfecting the body in all the minor and humble ways that you've given us to do. And being mindful, Lord, that even in this minor uh, service that we render to you and our minor discomfort in our days here that you give to us uh, riches and, and uh, wonderful glory beyond all that we deserve. And Lord, we look forward to that day. And help us for the, for the moment to do the humble work that you granted to us, joyfully and indeed as having the mind of Christ. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.